Hi, this is Ken Clark, the minister of the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. This service is part of a series of services which we have been posting weekly on our website, and they're also found on podcast apps such as Spotify. You can look for the service there under the label A Walk to Clio Hall. And again, you'll find that on Spotify or other broadcast apps. This particular service took place on June 21st, 2020. The organist is Jean Marie Callahan, and the preacher is Ken Clark. Welcome to the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Join me, if you will, in the opening words which are found in the order of service. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. The love of God is good and lasting. Hear us, O Lord, when we pray. Incline us to your word today and evermore. Our first hymn is For the Beauty of the Earth.
Join me, if you will, in saying the opening prayer found in the order of service. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. If we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. lesson is taken from the Old Testament book of Genesis, a continuation of the readings we've had for the last several weeks, more or less chronologically. If you recall, last week the selection told of the visit of three people in the camp of Abraham and Sarah, how a promise was made to her who had been childless all her life that she would bear a son. And so we pick up in Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21, this thread about the son, the child Isaac. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son, but God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and 
the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Here ends the first lesson. The hymn is not unto us, O Lord of heaven. Gospel of Matthew in the 10th chapter, verses 24 through 39. Jesus said, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whosoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Here ends the second lesson. Well, I'll tell you, those are two incredible readings for Father's Day, aren't they? If we were going to be talking this morning about dysfunctional families and how things go wrong, rather than praising fathers, these would be excellent. We'll get into the story of Abraham and Isaac, and Sarah, and Hagar, and Ishmael, in a little bit. First, I want to spend just a few minutes on the gospel reading. It's a gospel reading that consists, it seems, of sayings of Jesus that are woven together into a semi-coherent speech. There's no one driving narrative through all this, but there certainly is the first uncomfortable section about the slave, which is echoed perhaps from the Old Testament in the story of Hagar, and then going on from there talking about killing the body and destroying the soul and body in hell. And then further on this point I've already alluded to about how the presence of Jesus and following the teachings of Jesus comes at a very costly price, setting families asunder. There's something in the chaos of all this that perhaps reminds us of the present day when people are so torn apart. reminds us, although we are far from Thanksgiving, we probably already are approaching the fall with dread over what happens when a family gathers at the table in an election year. I can only predict, and I'm sorry to raise that prospect in the middle of a beautiful summer. The point is, this prospect of families being set against one another does have a familiar and common ring to it to us today, although I suppose that this was so in every age. And every time you chose, there would be people who would recognize a familiarity of the passage to say, oh yes, this has happened to me, it's happening to us, it's happening right now. So there is this sense in the New Testament that it might be relevant to today. Others looking at this 
section, some commentators thinking about this reading from Matthew have said, well, you know, Jesus in this, these, this, these sayings is speaking figuratively. He's using brilliant imagery, but he's speaking figuratively. To which I say, well, it's all figurative until it's literal, isn't it? At some point, these things do happen. At some point, people do find a cause. At some point, people do commit themselves. And it's not always the cause of Christ, but it is something like this. And Jesus describes some of the situation. I'm going to leave the New Testament readings as they are with all their challenges to us and let you figure out how relevant they are to this day, how much of this is figurative, how much of this is literal. I'm going to turn to the Old Testament where we find more of this discordant note on Father's Day, more of a sense of families being torn up. We know partly this story of Abraham and Sarah. We had it last week where the fact was Abraham and Sarah could not bear a child, and so Abraham took Sarah's maidservant, a slave, and had a child with her. This continues a story in Abraham's life. Remember, they had been exiled, or they had left their homeland to start a new life, and eventually, at first, they had wound up in Egypt, where Abraham had his wife tell the Pharaoh that she was his sister, and she got into the Pharaoh's harem for a while until the Pharaoh found out and took her back to Abraham. And now Sarah, having left Egypt with Abraham, has no children. And so Abraham takes Hagar, has a child with Hagar. Hagar, as we know, becomes an important figure. Not so much for us from our perspective, but an important figure worth remembering. Hagar's child Ishmael is the start of a whole new branch of a religious reality. And indeed, in the Muslim world, it is through Hagar that the lineage is traced up through Abraham. Indeed, although Hagar is not mentioned directly in the Quran, there is allusions and there is much commentary about her and her son Ishmael in the Islamic tradition. During the time of pilgrimage, there were two hills near Mecca, Al-Safa and Al-Marwa. These two hills are places between which pilgrims to Mecca run seven times. They participate in this activity to illustrate and to bring to mind the desperate search of Hagar as she sought a well for water so that her son might live. And then there is something just a few meters from the Kaaba, the holy site itself in Mecca, called the Zamzam Well, which indeed was the well, according to these commentaries, that Hagar found to give herself and her son nourishment. And so it is intimately connected in the Muslim tradition, the story of Hagar and Ishmael. The story of Hagar is the story of one cast out, 
the story of Hagar is the story of a woman who bears a son, whose son is the firstborn, who is the inheritor of everything that Abraham has until Isaac comes along. The story of Hagar is the story of another woman who turns upon her, a woman who we found last week to be full of joy and happiness, a woman who we were rooting for, whose life was fulfilled. This very same woman now agitating to cast out the maidservant, the slave, so that her son may have it all, that her son may have everything. The story of Abraham and Sarah is a story of complication, of a family that doesn't seem quite right, if you ask me. I referenced last week how Adam and Eve seem like paragons of virtue compared to Sarah and Abraham. And we know in the next chapters in Genesis that Abraham is going to be commanded to take this son Isaac, who he has made his sole heir, this gift to Sarah. He's going to be commanded to take this son Isaac and sacrifice him, kill him, by the command of God. That's a story for another day, but it is a hint at all the complications that are going on at this point in the Old Testament. Some of the verses that we read are so reminiscent of those nativity stories of Jesus, the promise of a child and of a son. And yet it takes such a, a different turn as Hagar goes into the wilderness. One commentator has suggested that there was a sacrifice not only of Isaac, but in this family, in this tribe, and it was also a sacrifice of another child, a son, who was exiled. And so despite its ups and downs, despite all this disharmony, it's an interesting piece of scripture for Father's Day as we reflect upon our heritage, as we reflect upon fathers who have done hard things, made hard decisions, as we reflect upon fathers who perhaps have been distant, fathers who have been loving and kind, fathers who have been absent, fathers who have been mean and abusive. All these things are written at the edges of this story. They're not directly before us, but they're suggestive. And the idea of children either being blessed, being spared, or being cast out is a story familiar in so many families in so many ages. You can imagine that the figure of Hagar herself has been an intriguing one. Hagar's story has been alluded to by Toni Morrison in her book, The Song of Solomon. Salman Rushdie, author of the Satanic Verses, finds time to mention Hagar. Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, has Hagar in her narrative. It's there and in many other places, the story of a person, a slave, a servant, who's cast out. But strangely enough, Hagar is also blessed. And I'll come to that in a little bit. I first want to just take an aside to 
to tell you about one other person who took up the cause of Hagar. That was a sculptress, a sculptor, by the name of Mary Adomia Lewis. Mary Adomia Lewis. She was born in New York, in Greenbush, New York, in 1844. She was a woman of color. She was born in New York, a free woman. She was of mixed racial ancestry. On the father's side, Haitian, African. On her mother's side, Ojibwe, Native American. She had a brother, and as they grew up, they moved after a bit to the area of Rochester, New York. And she writes at one point, until I was 12 years old, I led this wandering life, fishing and swimming and making moccasins. Indeed, part of her native heritage was to earn a living this way. She eventually ended up at Oberlin College, which was run principally by a group of abolitionists connected, I believe, with the Congregational Church. Ended up there in the interesting year of 1859. Can you imagine a black woman, a woman of color, entering Oberlin College in 1859? Her time there was not a good time. We tend to, well, we can't romanticize that period but we can reflect on the fact that sometimes we think, oh, what great good was done by these institutions for some, while so much evil was being done in the culture at large. But indeed, her time at Oberlin was not a happy time. She fell into conflict not only with other students there, but she fell into conflict perhaps with the community. She was accused of trying to poison two of her college roommates. A trial was held and she was acquitted. The evidence didn't look very strong against her, all circumstantial. She found her way after Oberlin to Boston, Massachusetts. There she started taking up more seriously the work of becoming a sculptor. There she found support among people who wanted to further her career although she was a little bit hesitant, thinking that they were perhaps supporting her not on her artistic talent, but upon the idea, the virtuous idea of helping her. She didn't want their help. She wanted recognition for the artist that she was. She didn't want their patronage in the worst sense of the word. William Lloyd Garrison, who set up a press here in Bennington, Vermont, for a year or two, was one of the people who helped her career along. She sculpted a bust for Ulysses S. Grant. She sculpted a bust of Robert Gould Shaw. You may not remember Robert Gould Shaw, but he was the captain of the Black Regiment in the Civil War, justly famous in Boston. The Shaw family purchased the bust from her, and she made other copies, which she sold for $15 a piece. Interestingly enough, the monument which commemorates the regiment Shaw commanded was defaced just this past few weeks on the Boston Common. With the money she gained from her work in Boston, Mary Domania Lewis was able to go to Italy. One can imagine all the 
reasons for this move. Number one, Italy was a place where artists went, especially sculptors. But also, one can imagine that Mary Lewis was never quite at home in her home country, and she had to figure out something for herself in a different place to understand who she was and what her work was. When she arrived in Rome, she was befriended by Hiram Powers, a Vermonter, born in Woodstock, Vermont, lived here and in Vermont for his first six years. Hiram Powers had earlier scandalized the world by, by sculpting a nude sculpture called The Greek Slave. Powers gave Mary Lewis space in his studio where she could continue her work. One of her more famous sculptures was one entitled The Death of Cleopatra. It was exhibited at the U.S. Centennial Exhibition and kind of fell into obscurity at a certain point. It was stored in a storeroom and a group of Boy Scouts in the early part of the 1900s decided it would be good to paint this sculpture, give it a little life as they did to the old Greek sculptures. The sculpture in its day was controversial in the fact that it showed Cleopatra at the moment of death and was considered very avant-garde. These Boy Scouts painted it over. In the course of that, they did a little bit of damage to the sculpture, and it laid forgotten for many more years until it was finally rediscovered through the work of scholars and biographers of Lewis. It was finally given to the Smithsonian Institution. One other sculpture that Lewis made was, of course, it had to be Hagar, the outcast, the woman sent away. Hagar, as I said, was dealt a difficult hand, and yet there is something about Hagar that fixes our mind on her because God was always with her despite everything. God was with her. Even though Abraham and Sarah had canceled her out, even though they had cast her out, even though they would not look upon her, even though they had decided that they would rather just turn the other way and not face the realities that were before them, God was with Hagar. Abraham was doing what he thought he was instructed to do by God. It was, in fact, the second time that Hagar had been banished. The first time after she gave birth to Ishmael, Sarah was jealous for the first time, and she arranged for Abraham to have Hagar go away. Here we are in Genesis 16. Then Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. That story, I would say, is an old story, but literally this is an old story. The shock of it is that it is still a new story. 
The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. This is the first time. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for the multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son, and you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. In those verses, there's the ring of something familiar. And then, he shall be a wild ass of a man, and with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she, Hagar, named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ber Elo Aroy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And there is something interesting. A case in the Bible where someone encounters the Lord, looks upon the Lord, and names the Lord. In this case, Hagar is a woman who names the Lord. And what does she name the Lord? She names God the one who sees me, or God of seeing. And I think that is so important. I go back to the point I made about our friend Mary Lewis, the sculptress, who takes upon herself looking upon a, a block of stone, and from that block of stone is able to see something more and give it shape. The God of seeing, the God who sees us, the God who sees Ishmael in the desert dying of thirst, the God who sees Hagar, his mother. Not close enough because she doesn't want to see him die, but close enough so that God sees both and is present to them. The God who sees, what a God is that? Who looks upon life and all its realities and sees. I think there is a difference between seeing and understanding. A lot of times we say, I see, I get it. But there are a lot of times in life where it's only necessary for us to see. We don't get it, but we see. We witness. There's a lot of times like this going on right now where there are things that we are seeing that we can't understand. There are histories and pasts that we're seeing and people that we're encountering perhaps for the first time in stories that we're seeing, not understanding, but seeing. There's a difference between the two. And furthermore, if we go back to Abraham, who is called the father of faith, the one who will go and take his son Isaac to the altar to sacrifice at God's command, there's a difference between faith and seeing. Faith is not seeing in some sense. Faith is just going along because 
those are the orders and you are under orders. You're in this relationship and in this relationship you are bound to follow. And so you do what's required on seeing. A lot of people think of faith this way. We see faith this way. We see faith is okay. It may not be fully believable. It may not make a lot of sense, but faith is okay because we see where it fits into our world and helps us cope. But there is another deeper faith related to seeing, which is simply looking upon this world, a world of chaos, a world of not possible injustice, but true injustice, a world that turns upon itself, a world that doesn't seem to heed our better angels, a world that doesn't feed its poor, doesn't clothe the needy, doesn't shelter the homeless. We look upon this world. We cannot understand it. We cannot even sometimes change it. And yet we must look and be changed by looking, not by understanding. Ultimately, I go back to the Robert Gould Shaw statue and all the other statues. I'm not arguing again into the Confederate statue situation, but we cannot erase the past. We can't erase the words in the Bible we read today about the slave girl and the submission. We cannot erase Hagar as a woman oppressed and Sarah, her own story. And Abraham, the father of this family. We cannot change these things. We must look upon them. We must see them. We must admit that we cannot understand. And in some curious way, we, I think speaking for myself, must say we cannot fully judge. We were not in those times and in that place. I'm not excusing anything. I'm simply saying our judging the past makes us feel righteous. What we should be doing, in my opinion, in these situations is looking at our present world, at the past we have inherited, and seeing, not understanding, but seeing what we see move to change our lives, not move to make ourselves feel good, but move to see, to see God in the midst of this. How can God be in the midst of this? God who sees. The God who sees is the God who, when another person draws up to us, allows us to see them as they really are. And I'm not even going to suggest to you how they really are. But that is the art of seeing, of going for not the surface, not the block of stone, but for that spirit within. The God who sees wants us to see, to look long and hard at the past and to look long and hard at the present and to see everyone, to cast out no one, I'm kind of against the Gospel of Matthew here. But to see it all, to see all these people, 
the outcasts and the in-crowd, to see them as they really are, and to wonder what God will do. Amen. Our hymn is Come Labor On. First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Here in the meeting house, Jean Marie Callahan and myself, a warm day outside. I hope you find the day to be a good one. There continue to be a few announcements. We will have a small gathering at the church next week, Sunday at noon, a little picnic outside. We can't use the interior of the church at this point because of air circulation matters, but we will gather safely, bring a mask, be prepared to give your name, be prepared perhaps to see a friend from a safe distance. There will be no hugging. Be prepared to see your friends. If you want to support the work of the church and can't be here to drop something in the collection plate this morning, as it silently passes around, then I urge you to drop something in the mail to the Old First Congregational Church, One Monument Circle, 
Old Bennington, Vermont, 05201. And we would be most appreciative of that. The morning offering for the work of the church will now be received. give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Amen. Before we conclude today's service, I just want to add a word on Maria Demonia Lewis to, to mention that she was a Roman Catholic. She ended her life. She died in London, and her grave was pretty much unrecognized for many, many years. And I'm happy to report that it has been found. It was thought that she, her grave could not be found, but it has been found and 
there is a more fitting, but very simple, without any bit of sculpture on it, very simple marker that indicates her life and that she was a sculptor. Let us pray. Dear God, we give you thanks this day for the time we have together, for the age we share, for the work before us. We think of our families and the blessings we have been given, the challenges. We think of the high points and also the difficult times. We turn back into scripture and see reflections of blessing and peace, but also of harm and hurt. We think of our own lives, thankful that we have come this far, knowing that God has journeyed with us we give thanks for fathers who have loved well, who have raised families, who have provided, who have dealt with the realities of life, who have sacrificed, who have understood what is right and reminded us of our obligation. Remember fathers who have set us free to be ourselves. We ask that all people experience such freedom of self and of spirit. We remember all those in life who can truly see, that is, see us for who we are, See us as your children, children of one great parent upon this earth. And so we pray for a blessing upon all this day, that we might truly see one another, that we might bring peace to each other, that we might strive for justice, that we may think twice before we cast out or cast down or cast away. Be with us this day, dear God, as we pray for our own health and the health of those we love. Pray for the health of those in this church and those who hear these words. May your healing be abundant and strong. May we be guided always by your word. May we have faith in your presence, in your ability to see us and to know us. May we have faith in the lessons of Jesus and in the lives of those who have gone before us both in acts of love and sacrifice, in works of freedom and liberation. 
We give thanks for our land and our blessings. We pray for this earth that we may exert on it a care and loving kindness. Be with us always when we are alone or in doubt, when we despair, when we think we ride high, when we are in times of joy and happiness, and when we are in times of hurt and sorrow. Go with us wherever we go. Be with us always. Let us always name you as love and goodness. Now in silence, we make our prayer to you. Amen. And as Jesus taught us, we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our final hymn is This Is My Father's World.
may God bless us and keep us. May God's face shine upon us and give us peace this day and evermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
May all go well with you in the week ahead. You'll be in my prayers and say a prayer for those that you know and hold in your heart. Permission to podcast and stream the service music is granted under license number 3009679 from CCLI with all other creative rights reserved.